Good morning. Our scripture reading today comes from Psalm 32, verses 1 through 5, and it's found on page 395 in your Pew Bibles, and also John 2, 1 and 2, found on page 862 in your Pew Bibles. Blessed is he whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord does not count against him, and in whose spirit is no deceit. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. John 2, 1 and 2 says, My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. Thank you for that last song. Did your spirit swell a bit? You heard that, sang that? Beautiful. Well, what do you do when you're guilty? <laughs> I remember reading in Reader's Digest a number of years ago. This was back in the 80s, and... and uh, there were two women who went on a car trip for about 40 miles uh, to visit a third friend of theirs, and they had a nice visit, and when they were leaving, they discovered that the keys were in the ignition, doors to the car locked. This was before cell phones, that kind of thing, so she walked back in and called from the landline of her friend there, and her husband was in a uh, meeting. Fortunately, there was a phone in that boardroom, and uh, it was an important meeting, but he was like, well, what am I going to do? And he was frustrated. He was like, okay, I'm leaving right now. And so he's heading out. About 20 minutes later, uh, they're walking back outside and just kind of standing around the car. And this woman who drove, her friend, just one time, just curious, checks the back doors. And one of the back doors to the car is open. Now, what do you do? Husband's on the way. And the other one was like, he's going, to be, he's going to be ticked off when he gets here. You know that. Now, what would you do? What would a good spouse do? What would most spouses do? <laughs> I'm sensing a weight of guilt already in this room. That's exactly what she did. She opened the door, mashed the button, slammed it. There you go. Tried to slam the door on it. Well, we all deal with guilt in different ways. And at times, our response is to do just that, to cover up the sin. David tried to slam the door, so to speak, on his past guilt. You know that very famous story of the affair he had with Bathsheba. She becomes pregnant, and sometimes it gets less airplay, but what he tried to do, do you remember what he did to try to cover <clears throat> his tracks? First of all, he invited her husband, Uriah, to his palace and encouraged her to go, to him, him rather to go sleep with her. Try to, you know, oh, she's pregnant, it's from him, okay. That didn't work, though, because Uriah was so uh, loyal. He said, I'm not going to do that. I'm back here from the front, and I'm not going to, you know, be an exception to my soldiers and to my general. And so he slept outside the palace gates with the slaves. That's what he did. So the next day, David gets Uriah drunk and tries to get him to go home again. It's in 2 Samuel 11, tries to get him to go home again, and he will not do it. And I want you to think about the tragedy of that. Uriah has more integrity and loyalty drunk than David does sober. He really does. 
David eventually, as you know, tells General Joab to put Uriah out at the front and to withdraw the troops to where Uriah is left there hanging dry. And yes, he is killed. And David thinks he's got it taken care of, thinks that he's pulled it off. But as Numbers chapter 23 says, your sins will find you out if with no one else it'll be with God. But sometimes it'll be even with others. And in David's case, it was both. You know the story about when Nathan confronts him and says, you are the man. And David, who had been carrying this around for about a year, says, yes, yes, I have sinned. At some point thereafter, he writes Psalm 51, which you know, have mercy on me, O God, according to thy steadfast love. He goes on and says, against you, you only have I sinned. It says, created me a clean heart, restore to me the joy of my salvation. You can tell that he's just wrestling with this sense of the weight of sin upon his heart. But sometime later, he writes Psalm 32. And this is one that talks about, yes, the need to confess, but the blessedness of one who does confess. It recounts the pain of his guilt, but what happened after he confessed his sin? Now, what might you be carrying around this morning? What are you feeling guilty about? Is it something that happened in the distant past? Or is it something that happened at high school or college? Is it something that happened on a business trip? Is it something that happened in a confrontation with a friend or family member? Is it a wrong decision that you made at a point of of weakness or a point of ignorance or a point of anger? And perhaps the afterburner of that unfortunate choice is still kind of shadowing you inside. Whatever it is, as you know, it can weigh on you. And, and what David really tells us in this psalm is, you know, to let go of the guilt, you've got to tell it like it is. You've got to come forward and confess. Let, let's start back, Psalm 32, beginning at verse 1. And again, he begins by making it clear to us, yes, it's not just a mere superficial transaction where you confess your sin and things are fine, unless your heart is right. As a part of it, it begins, blessed are those whose transgressions are forgiven. The word there, transgression, literally means uh, one who commits mutiny. (laughs) It means rebellion, revolt. So again, he starts out by saying, we're talking about sin that is rebellion, blatant rebellion against God. Don't take that lightly. Don't exercise what Bonhoeffer calls cheap grace. This is a very, very serious thing. Do not take your sin lightly. Express that godly sorrow that Paul talks about. And it goes on to say, blessed are those whose sins are covered. The word there for sin is is the equivalent to the New Testament word of it, hamartia, which means to miss the mark. And David had missed the mark in a way he never expected he would. Think about this. Uh, I read this uh, yesterday at at a graveside service, and it's such a beautiful psalm, the 23rd Psalm. Can anybody begin that with me? The Lord is my... Shepherd, I shall not want. He maketh me to lie in green pastures. He leadeth me beside the still waters. He restoreth my soul. Beautiful, beautiful peace. And David, no doubt, wrote that at an earlier time when he was perhaps a more humble shepherd boy, perhaps a shepherd king. And yet I'm convinced that the young man who wrote that beautiful Psalm 23 never thought he was going to have to write Psalm 32. There was an earlier time when things were fine, but then he made some bad choices out of anger and out of lust and out of other ill motives. And he comes to a point of Psalm 51 
and then Psalm 32. Didn't they ever expect to be there? Uh, had a student several years ago at Sanford whose uh, father was a prominent a pastor on the West Coast. And unfortunately, he was unfaithful to his wife. He was caught. And, and it just put their life into a tailspin. And, and the daughter was so, so angry. And I remember asking her weeks after it happened, you know, how he was doing, how they were doing. And she said, well, I was just so angry. And I kept talking about my anger to him again and again. And finally, he said, you know... I didn't plan on having an affair. That was not a goal of mine. That was not on my agenda. That was not on my radar. And it has ruined me. I mean, my life is an utter mess. Now, this was a pastor who no doubt was passionate about his calling. I'm sure his motives were great when he went into the ministry and had done great things, but he got caught up in that web, suddenly missing the mark once, and then it just spirals from there. I don't think he ever suspected that he would be guilty of that. But come on, let's just put it right on you. There are things that you have done that you never would have thought, you know what, that was not on my agenda, that wasn't a goal of mine, that wasn't on my radar, and yet I gave in to that. We've all been there. How could I have been so stupid? If I'd have known then what I know now, what have I done? Paul talks about it in Romans chapter 7 when he says, you know, it's... I know what's good, and I know the good that I should do, but it's the very thing that I hate that I do. And that's what temptation can do as it leads you into sin. And we have all, all been there. Let's go to verse 2. Blessed are those who sin the Lord does not count against them. Uh, sometimes that word is, is translated iniquity there, which is an old-fashioned word. But it, the word there for sin in verse 2 literally means something that is twisted that needs to be straightened out or something that is warped that needs to be uh, leveled out, uh, something that is bent that needs to be straightened out. And, and that's an excellent depiction of what sin can do to us because it starts to wear on us. It twists us up. It warps us. It bends us down. And it weighs us down. And I think when you get to verse 3, I think there's no better depiction of unresolved guilt in all of Scripture than verse 3. When David says, when I kept silent, and he did so for a year, when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. That word groaning is interesting. It's really, the word literally means roaring. And David is reaching back at this point to his earlier shepherd days. I can picture him uh, at night in a Bethlehem field somewhere as a shepherd, and, and all he hears is the, you know, the gentle, soft rumbling of, of sleepy sheep and all of a sudden his blood just races cold all of a sudden because he hears the roar of a ravenous lion and he has to get his rod and the staff and try to ward off the lion it's talking about the roaring of a lion what he's saying here literally is when i wake up in the morning my conscience roars at me have you ever been there and he goes on to say my bones are wasting away. I mean, it affects you physically sometimes, does it not? Guilt can do that. Read on with verse 4. He says, for day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. Day and night. I mean, it, it, it fatigues you sometimes. There's a book by H.G. Wells called Mr. Polly, and the chief character in that is described in there as not so much a living human being so much as a walking civil war. Has that ever spoken to you? With your inner conflictedness, with your inner burdenness, if you will, 
having that inner conflict? Have you ever felt that way? And you get to that point where you realize if you don't deal with guilt, it will deal with you. You don't deal with it, it will deal with you. How many of y'all know who I'm talking about if I say the name John Claypool? Raise your hand if you do. A lot of people a lot of people do in this service. John Claypool. I'm not talking about that John Claypool who was at St. Luke's and who was the marvelous preacher. Another John Claypool, it's his name. This other John Claypool, let me go back to 1996, a guy named Dennis Thompson who was preaching uh, near St. Paul, Minnesota. There's a guy in his congregation named John Claypool had been there for about four years and uh, after the service uh, John came up to Pastor Dennis and said uh, I need to talk with you and what I'm going to tell you is probably going to ruin your day and he said well sermon's over service is over go ahead and ruin my day and John Claypool shared with him this he said back when I was 14 10 years ago when I was stoned on pot and drunk on wine I went and with no motive whatsoever went and killed two people. I murdered them. Uh, The gentleman was the mayor of a small town and he also killed his wife. And he did it for no reason. He was just kind of out of his head and he did it. But interestingly, he was never a suspect. He was never questioned, ever. And 20 years had passed. And within those 20 years, he had become a Christ follower. And he had been somewhat conscience-stricken before he became a believer, but he was all the more after he became a believer. Twenty years later, he comes up to the pastor after a service and says, I need to tell you about this. I murdered two people 20 years ago, and I've never been caught, and I need to confess that. And basically what he said was, I cannot carry this around any longer. He said, it's been a burden for so long. Long, And I want to tell you, and yes, I want to tell the authorities, and I want to tell the family members of these people. And he went and did just that. He surrendered at the Wabasha County Jail. He eventually was uh, in court and entered a plea, two counts of second-degree murder. And he was convicted. And they asked him, you know, if he had anything to say before he was taken to prison. And he stood up and he said, and I quote, I am more free now than at any time in my last 20 years, even though now I am incarcerated. (laughs) And to this day, Pastor Dennis Thompson describes this inmate, John Claypool, as the freest man I've ever known. Wow. Now, if you don't deal with guilt, it deals with you. And unresolved guilt, as you know, can thread its way into your life. And and, and David's saying, you need to tell it like it is. And if this John Claypool can do that, if he can be that authentic and courageous and confess his own burden of guilt, and that way, despite the consequences he faced, you know what? So can you. And even better, just like this John Claypool, no matter what you have done, no matter what you have done, his grace is there and ready for the receiving forgiveness awaits and that is desperately what he wants to offer you i was talking with stephen during the break and and you know we were talking about you know god it says in scripture he forgets our sins i know he's the omniscient god you know we can argue about that but he purposefully as a loving father a loving parent forgets your sin if you genuinely authentically confess it to him and if we do that are we not emulating him all the more Because we need to work toward forgetting our sin. Will we ever forget it fully? Probably not. But can we remove more of the weight of that guilt 
that's weighing us down. That is what God desires. You see that when you get to verse 5 in this psalm. Finally, after he'd been wasting away and his heart was heavy, his strength was sapped like in the heat of summer, look at verse 5. Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave me of the guilt of my sin. I love the way St. Augustine, in his commentary on this passage, he says, these words were no sooner out of the mouth of David that God had already forgiven him of the guilt of his sin. And that's the good news. And what's amazing is, you know, David had committed what they call a high-handed sin. That's how it's described in the Old Testament. I mean, it's one of the top ten sins, and it's called a high-handed sin because there was no sacrifice that you could for sure atone for that sin with. And so he just threw himself at the mercy of God. He did not have an intercessor. He did not have an advocate. And that's the great news for you and me. We have an advocate unlike David at that point in history. And I love the way it's expressed in 1 John 2, verse 1. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody anybody does sin, we have an advocate, the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. Uh, Parakleton is the word there. It's a beautiful word. We have one who advocates for us. He is our defender. He is our counselor. He is the one who speaks on our behalf to God the Father. That is the best of news. And, And what's great is we have that advocate for us right here even now. If you translate that verse literally in the Greek, it says we are now, right now, having an advocate. We are right now having an advocate. It's there for us, that grace for us. He is there for us right now. Do we see that? And and I mean, see it. And that's why I'm grateful for symbols like this table here with the bread, with the drink, because even those symbols remind us he is here with us right now. And we are reminded even here now of his brokenness with the bread and the shedding of his blood for us by the drink. He is with us here even now. I think some people have this distorted idea that God wants us to carry around this ball and chain of sin and be, be, you know, be subject to this prolonged crushing weight of the sin. And you think, oh, I did so badly recently or so long ago and I've got to pay for it. No, God is trying to tell you, hey, it's been paid for. It's been paid for. And I wonder if someone in here needs to hear that this morning. And emulate that one who will forgive you and forget you of your sins even now. You know, who is it that wants you to... <laughs> let's just get down to it and be real you know, basic theological here. Who is it who wants you to be weighed down with guilt? Who is it? We would say evil or Satan, whatever word you want to use. Yeah, the evil one, the deceiver. He is the one who wants you to remain that. Why? Why? Because he doesn't want you to have a good life. He wants to inhibit your life. He wants to inhibit your witness, your mission. We're letting him win. We are surrendering to him when we do just that. That's why I saw a bumper sticker a while back, and I really like it. It said, the next time Satan reminds you of your past, you remind him of his future. I like that. Next time he tries to remind you of your past, remind him of his future. Back in the late 1700s, William Cupper was so weighted down by guilt from sins from the past, and he had lived quite a, uh, uh, quite a wayward life, I'll say. 
And he was so weighed down with the guilt of it, and he wasn't even a believer, but, but he felt so bad about it that he attempted to take his own life. And fortunately for him and for us, he, he failed. And he became a Christ follower. And, and he began to realize and trust that God somehow can forgive even him. And out of that, he penned this wonderful hymn. Have you all ever heard of There's a Fountain Filled with Blood? Does anybody know that hymn? Beautiful hymn. First stanza goes, There's a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins, and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. And I've always been struck by this hymn because it repeats that four times. Lose all their guilty stains. 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 The next stanza, four times, wash my sins away, wash my sins away, wash my sins away, wash my sins away. And I thought, man, why does he keep repeating that over and over continually? And I thought, you know, I wonder if Christians in the late 1700s are just like Christians today because sometimes I think we need to be reminded again and again and again in order to be convinced that indeed you are forgiven. And that burden needs to be lifted from you. That is exactly what he wants for you. Otherwise, evil is penetrating into your life and you're letting evil win and inhibit you, inhibit your life, inhibit your witness, inhibit your sense of joy. That is not what he wants. And maybe you are needing to repeat that to yourself again and again. Even now, you are forgiven, you are forgiven, you are forgiven, you are forgiven. I'd like for us to enter into a discipline of meditation. If we could just bow our heads and close our eyes. And, and again, maybe you need to let go of some guilt that you've been carrying around right now. And indeed, I, I'm here to tell you, it, indeed, it's a process. I think just as Jesus said, you've got to forgive somebody seven, 70 times seven because sometimes you have to work your way toward forgiveness of someone. Yes, even now you need to work your way toward releasing that guilt that you have, but my goodness, that's exactly what he wants you to do. Release as much of it as you possibly can. And so before we partake of this meal, I want you to meditate for just a moment. What is some regret in your life that's weighed you down as of late? What is something you need to pass over to him, give to him? Let him take that weight. What did he say? Come to me, those who labor or heavy laden, I will give you rest. Place your burden upon me. Take just a moment of silence and do that right now. Lord, it might be that some of us in here have been running for too long, denying for too long, covering it up for too long, just not wanting to face it. Just as David did for a time, and yet he realized, I need to tell it like it is to God and give it over to him. And Lord, whoever needs to do that this morning, we just pray for them and lift them up to you especially. May they know of our prayerful support surrounding them, and especially your love, which just envelops them. Lord, we feel so tainted, so stained by our sin, and yet you wash that clean. It was washed clean so long ago, and you continue to do that if we truthfully, sincerely, genuinely confess our sin to you. So we give that weight over to you now. We thank you that your son Jesus took on that weight so long ago. And as we enter into this meal, may we celebrate how he took that on with the breaking of his body, the shedding of his blood as we observe
this meal, O oh God, may it be a visible sign of what he did for us so long ago. Even as we taste of the bread and of the drink, may it be a taste of grace to us. Thank you that we can give it all to you. Bring it to your feet, O oh God. We thank you for all of this. In your name we pray. Amen.